Amen. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5. What just a great thing to say to yourself during the week. Surely the goodness and love of the Lord. Beautiful. those who are guests with us, we've been working through Genesis, and primarily Genesis chapter 1 through 11, handling a chapter at a time. And so let's read the word of the Lord in Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam he fathered Seth were eight, after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived, after he fathered Enosh, 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived, after he fathered Kenan, 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Let us pray. 
God Almighty, these are your words. They are ever true and good for us. This is the bread of life to us in truth and in Christ. We pray that you would humble us and encourage us, conform us to your image and likeness by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to Bloomington Bible Church, to the preaching of a genealogy. (laughs) We're glad you've joined us for such a meaningless text. I learned, um, I learned recently, for those of you who are guests with us, I sit down in the stool for relevance and to abdicate my pastoral authority and so you all can feel more comfortable. I'm kidding. I struck with a bit of bodily weakness. I um, heard recently that Bloomington Hospital has the highest rate of mortality in all of the IU Health Network. And what I mean by the highest rate of mortality is that more people die actually in the hospital than, you know, like, uh, than in, in any other hospital. And, and, and what I'm why that's significant, or what would be normal, as many of you would know, is that when someone come, is coming to the end of their life and the family is coming to grips with the end of their life, that you know, they, they may go home, they may go you know, for hospice to uh, um, step in in the end, um, but oftentimes, or at least less than in Bloomington, everywhere else, um, people would do something like that rather than remain in the hospital. And it, it really begs kind of an interesting question. Why? Why in Bloomington Hospital do people refuse to ever go home from the hospital to die? Why here as opposed to other places um, would that be true? have kind of an inside track to the nature of the hospital here. I won't go into it. You could probably figure it out pretty quickly with a little detective work, but even in here in our local hospital during COVID or because the city here was un- has been unwilling to ever create a, a city morgue the hospital had to actually have a, a freezer truck out behind the hospital. Why? These things that are related to death in Bloomington that don't happen in other places. Well, it's because Bloomington is terrified to die. It's because Bloomington is terrified to die. It's because Bloomington knows the wrath of God that stands against it for its sins. And Bloomington is terrified to die. Bloomington is unwilling to accept the reality of death. And so when someone's in the hospital, they will fight and their family will fight to seek to keep them alive as if they are going to be able to keep them alive forever, as if they are somehow not subject 
to God's judgment and to the pangs of his wrath in facing death. And so what ends up happening, apparently, uh, from pretty good inside sources, is that there's endless lawsuits and endless fighting from families and endless, and I, look, I, I know the malpractice that happens in hospitals. This is different than that. I've faced that very personally. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? What I'm talking about is people being afraid, terrified to die, and unwilling to ever accept that death is their lot. Families suing the hospital because they can't keep them alive, in essence. And why would we ever think that we could actually escape the God's judgment? Why would we ever think we could escape God's judgment? One thing is certain in Genesis chapter 5, in Adam all sinned, and in Adam all died. Did you notice the repetition as I read through Genesis 5? And he died. And he died. And he died. Now, the truth is, is much, it's like a softball to just blame Bloomington for things. That's like, the, that's like the easiest thing. I mean, if we can all just blame Bloomington endlessly for all kinds of things and criticize Bloomington. The fact of the matter is, we all have the same spiritual blood in our natural state. We have the same spiritual blood as Bloomington running through our own veins. We also want to keep death far away. We want to avoid thinking about it. After church, have a conversation with your spouse about how you need to live like you're dying and prepare your life like you're dying and that one, one day they are going to be living life without you. And see how that conversation just rolls smoothly over. But we must have these conversations, right? The point, though, is that we cannot have these conversations and cannot tolerate these conversations because we want to avoid thinking about it. We don't want to have to think about the reality of death, the enemy that death remains. We don't want to have to live as if our days are numbered and left to ourselves and to our natural sins and temptations as if we could live on forever and never have to meet our maker. But Genesis 5 is clear. We live, we bear children, and we die. So how do we need to think about death? What is our hope in death? And what pastoral thoughts are important maybe for us in our day and age and in the church that uh, we often don't consider so let's work through this and notice several truths. First, we now possess the image and likeness of Adam. Now, when you're reading your Bible, look for two things. One is contrast, stark contrast, uh, especially in Hebrew narrative. The other thing to look for is repetition. And so what did you see that was repeated? And he died. Those, things, those two things often point to important points. It's the way the Holy Spirit draws our intention our, our attention to the point of what we're studying. And at the beginning, we have a contrast. It's the contrast between being 
made in the image and likeness of God and being made in the image and likeness of Adam. We now possess the image and likeness of Adam. God having made us in him, his image and likeness, um, notice in verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now, all of our children bear our image and likeness and our nature and temperament and sins and temptations for better or seemingly always for worse. But there's more than that happening in Genesis chapter 5. It's, it's that we bear Adam's corruption. We bear Adam's corruption. We have his sin nature, which is a great contrast to the image and likeness of God that God created us with. Let me just make a comment in verse 2. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. I could, have, I could preach sermons on that right now, right? God named the race man. It's very hard for us to submit to God's naming of the race man. But he named the race man to encompass men, women, children, the human race. Right, I mean, when you read Tolkien and you read about the race of men, it wasn't that long ago that it was normal to say things like that. That's right, why I, I've disciplined myself to use the word man and men to represent the human race all the time because we constantly need reminded that God named the race man, pointing to Adam being created first, and then Eve into male headship. Okay, back to the point. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now, the pride of Lamech in Genesis chapter 3. Did you notice Lamech thinks he needs avenged 77-fold? The greatness of Lamech. And then he dies at 777 years old. God's judgment is so perfect on his pride, but that pride is ours. The immorality of Lamech in Adam is all ours. The jealousy and anger of Cain immediately post-fall, the first two children and the first sibling rivalry leading to death, the murderous intentions are ours, the faithlessness of Cain is ours in Adam, our corruption never ends. Calvin said something like, in our natural state, in our natural state, what vermin 
is not of more worth than us. And so in Adam all sinned, and so in Adam all die. The quick to go our own way, like sheep constantly going astray in the garden with Adam and Eve, is our corruption. Adam is his base function, abdicating his desire at his role and his responsibility as male and man failed, and that corruption is ours. Adam, listening to the voice of his wife, that corruption is ours. Eve, as woman, being deceived, that corruption is ours. How could you not take an honest look at yourself and agree with this? I, I'm just convinced one of, the, one of the clearest ways that Scripture testifies to its own truthfulness is its accuracy about human depravity. When it tells us, when God tells us, you will surely die. Who but two? Very rare exceptions. Who but two? Who has not fulfilled God's promise to surely die? So in Genesis 5, we're just before the flood so that we know that things weren't going well here. Now we only have Seth's line. This is only Seth's genealogy. Right? There's plenty of other people on the earth at this point. We know Genesis 6-5 has that foundational verse about our nature in Adam. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We know that the world went its way that there were many despisers of God, we can assume. We see it already unfolding in chaos and evil and wickedness immediately in the fall and post-fall world. And we all die under His hand of judgment against us. No one escapes, even when we can't feel as though our death is anywhere near us, it may be as near as today. You know, for the first 16 years of my life, I don't rem recall ever even thinking about death. Death came close to me for the first time when I was 16, uh, fall of 1998, with the death of my grandfather. Soon after that, in the next, within the next six months, just before I turned 17 with the death of my father. And early enough on to have to face that, that I'm not sure God could have done anything else that would have humbled me so much as facing the reality of death. 
Before that, I was invincible. I wanted to show you some pictures of what invincible looks like in my past, but I just didn't end up <coughs> quite thinking it was that we should go there. Death has a way of doing things in us, and God uses death to do things in us that can't be done in any other way. It abases us and reminds us that we are dust. It shames us that we bear Adam's sins and corruption and likeness. Many of you have experienced the same humbling through the reality of death. God's wrath comes close in death. We feel it in a way that we don't feel it any other way when we're close to death, whether our own or someone else's. And so what are we left with? We're left to abase ourselves, to shame ourselves at our iniquity. That apart from the work of God's Spirit in us and apart from His life given to us, apart from inward power touching our heart and life, we would be quick to run into the same uh, sensuality and worldliness and folly of all the rest who were washed away in the flood. And so unless He restores His image and likeness in us, that is not, of course, altogether gone, but it is in a heap of ruin, It is in a heap of ruin, like ruins that are now in shambles that once you could not even imagine its original uh, creation in, in, its, in, in, this, in the amount of glory that the ruins once beheld. The image of God, of course, is never fully gone, but it is fully marred. Our minds are affected by sin. Our emotions are affected by sin. Our heart is quick to deceive us and is untrustworthy, full of deception. And so, we all die. We all die. And so every person here needs to be prepared to die. You must be prepared to die. The preparation for death is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, who died a death to pay a penalty so great you could never pay it in a million lifetimes of perfect, of an effort towards perfect works righteousness. You must know Jesus Christ. Do you? And are you prepared to face the moment when it's true in your life and He died? It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Apart from Christ, there is no expectation except fiery judgment. 
the good news of Jesus Christ is that you can be saved. And we want you to be saved and to flee the wrath to come. And we don't want you to sit around and wait till tomorrow and wait till tomorrow and wait till you grow up and wait till you think uh, adulting means to deal with these things, but to repent and believe the good news of the Gospel that Jesus Christ is the Savior and Lord of the world. Now, everyone wants to know, like, why did they live so long, right? Why did they live so long? First of all, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to. We're not actually given a specific answer in the text. It doesn't say. It doesn't say they lived for a long time because of this, but you live for a shorter time because of this. But I think we can make some reasonable inferences. A few comments. Um, because this is one of the most mocked chapters in Scripture. Right? How can you believe the Bible when it says people lived for 900 years? Like, that's just absurd. How could you believe the Bible is true? Well, first, there is a bad assumption made. There is a bad assumption made, oftentimes in the church, that things must have always been the way they are today. Even those who rebel against God, using evolution as their means to do so, meaning things weren't always as they are today, still, when it comes to the Bible, want to uh, charge us or want to assume that everything must have been as it always, as it is now, it must have always been, meaning that no one could have ever lived longer than we live today. But there's no reason to assume that that's true, especially when Scripture tells us it's not. Second, We live in a fallen world. It's a post-flood world. Post-diluvian. Were you impressed with that? Every once in a while I try. We live in a world very different than the very good of Genesis 131 and the paradise-like world of Eden in Genesis 2. We cannot assume that the way things are now is the way things always were. Especially when Scripture tells us a different story. It is a reasonable inference to to assume that God was doing exactly what God set out to do with the creation of the world and filling it with His image and likeness. He wanted to fill the world with the knowledge of His glory by uh, populating the world with His image and likeness with those who would reflect His glory, with those who would visibly represent Him. And it's reasonable inference to assume that they lived long lives in order to fill the earth, to to, uh, bear fruit, to multiply, just like God said for them to do. And He gave them many years to do so. Can you imagine the children the blessing of all the children. It's like, you know, I mean, we hit 40 and it's starting to get tough. The metabolism doesn't work anymore. Body starts to change a bit. Energy level goes through the floor. That's if you're not, don't have some form of sickness already. And it starts to get a bit challenging, you know? 
as if it wasn't challenging at 20 and 30, but it gets additionally challenging. But God obviously gave special grace to them for them to raise and populate the earth, to fill the earth with the knowledge of His glory. There may be other reasons. I say this maybe for an apologetic for you. Consider the knowledge gained over 900 years of life. You ever thought about that? The wisdom gained, the knowledge gained over 900 years of life? You know, I'm still learning a lot of things. I don't have any desire to multiply my age right now by 20. But I would learn a lot more things. I continue to learn many things every day and every year. And if you multiply that, and it's, it's, this, is, this is kind of a, you know, a foot-in-the-mouth kind of thing to everyone who mocks the ancients' intelligence. You know, every time someone talks to me about how, I don't know, stupid cavemen... Grunt, like grunts they all are, you know? Everyone who, everyone who kind of talks about ancients like they're all idiots, I, I, just say to, I just say to them, I just always ask them, do you, do you know how Stonehenge was built? Or how the pyramids were built? Don't you, don't you think it's funny that you don't know that? You don't know how the ancient world moved stones. And it's immediately humbling. Well, one of the reasons for some of this kind of uh, intelligence is because they lived for a long time in the early days. But the main point is to be fruitful and multiply and rule and subdue the earth and reflect the glory of God. Now, you come back to the main point, which is dealing with death. We know very little about these individuals. From, uh, really, verse 6 through verse 20, nothing is said except they lived, they had sons and daughters, how long they lived, and they died. And if, they, if Seth's line wasn't recorded here in the Scripture for us, they would be just like the rest of us, dying and going into insignificance. Death humble, has humbled them in history's timeline. No real significance and no real fame about them. They lived, they had children, they died. We know nothing except... They were made in the image and likeness of God and they were corrupted in the image and likeness of Adam. And so when we see and feel the evil within ourselves, we know we are in the same race of man as they were. We know that some, right at the end of chapter 4, began to call upon the name of the Lord. Right? This isn't worldwide revival. It's not God yanking us around like there was worldwide revival and then just flood. Some began to call upon the name of the Lord. We know that um, the church of God was small and hidden like a treasure in the midst 
of the madness all around, as she often is throughout history. We see Enoch as an example. We don't see Enoch being placed in Genesis 5 as anything normal, or in history as anything normal. But he stands out in contrast as uh, the church of God, like a precious gem, God keeping for himself in the midst of all of the death and madness. Now, a couple thoughts pastorally that I just want to give you about death. Death is extremely inconvenient. But our whole lives are geared around making it as convenient as possible today. I have a friend in Brazil. He told me several years ago, he said, when someone dies in Brazil, they're buried the same day. It doesn't matter how far away you live. You're you're going to miss the burial. Why? Because that's the way things have to be handled. Just from a sanitation perspective. And our whole M.O. in Bloomington and everywhere and in the church is to do everything we can to make it as convenient as possible. I don't want to open a hornet's nest here. I just want you to think. That's it. I'm, I'm basically introducing a few pastoral thoughts. Think of it like that. I'm not going to close the lid on all of these pastoral thoughts perfectly. So, there you go. Our loved ones oftentimes are just quickly shipped off to the nursing home, even without any thought about how the reality of the situation is just about our convenience. Our love is so cold to our dying loved ones. Now, of course, I'm not saying the nursing home is all bad. I'm not saying that should never happen. It's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying this is about your heart. Have you thought about the inconvenience of death and that it should be inconvenient to you? Have you thought about that? I'm not saying everyone has to care for all of their loved ones at home until death is necessarily, and and that people who do that, it's all saintly. I'm not saying that. God wants your heart. But I am suggesting that for some, you should do that. And for some who don't think, have never thought about doing that, you should at least think about it. I'm suggesting that oftentimes we criticize those who commit abortion for the sake of convenience, and with the exact same heart in the Church of Jesus Christ, we cast off our loved ones at death for our own convenience. But to hell with Planned Parenthood. And to hell with Planned Parenthood. Funerals. And I, I, I'm grieved to even bring this up because I know all of us 
have loved ones who have been through funerals and celebrations of life and all kinds of things already. And I, my goal isn't to make everybody feel bad about what's happened in the past, but it is to get us to maybe think differently about how we handle some things because of the inconvenience of death. Funerals ought not to be delayed like we delay them today. Generally speaking, it would be good for man if it was something more like what Brazil does because of its inconvenience. I'm not saying it has to be exactly that way. Don't. But we delay them forever. Scripture says it's better to go to the Feast of Mourning than the Feast of Rejoicing, for this is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. And so we never think with faith about how God works in death and through the inconvenience of death. Like we have the funeral after mourning is over. And we remove death as far as we can from the funeral. And we remove the work of God in death as far as we can from the funeral. And so we only have things like celebrations of life. We need to think about these things. We need to think about these things. We need to think with Christian faith about these things. Christians trust God to humble men and cause them to look to Him in repentance. That is my story. Death brought me to Christ. I want death to bring you and your loved ones and your children to Christ also. That's the whole point of this. It's inconvenient. And we need not try to escape the pangs of wrath that we feel at death like we don't feel at any other time. And to seek to numb it through whatever means necessary to do so. Inconvenient. Secondly, I just want to open this. If I don't know how much I've talked about this with our church, but cremation is not Christian. Cremation is not Christian. You know, I used to think it was so weird. The, the, the first church that I, the first church I ever interviewed at, and I'm really glad that that didn't work out, but the first church that I interviewed at had a big cemetery, very old. This used to be the way things were. Churches had big cemeteries. I used to kind of just think it was weird. Why, why do churches have cemeteries? Why are, they, why are they always on the church property? And then you drive into the church property, it just feels weird. I feel. And so as I've as I've grown and as time has passed, I've realized that the way I felt about it was because I didn't want to have to think about death. And I also realized that my love towards God's saints was too cold 
to think about how to care for them and care for their body and honor their body in death as we loved them and honored their body in life. Well, there's cemeteries because down through the ages at churches because they did not submit their loved ones' bodies to dishonor in cremation. They buried them. They loved them in death as they had loved them in life. They did not submit them to the burning fire and to the crushing of the work of cremation to create their ashes. Pagans have always done that, and they still do today, and they set their loved ones on fire and send them down the river. Christians who understand that they're made in the image and likeness of God and who have the hope of resurrection are laid to death and laid to death in hope of resurrection. Not in annihilation into the finest dust. It's not Christian. It's not of faith. I don't have time to answer all the questions at the moment that I'm sure are being raised, but I just want you to know, let this just be a conversation and a dialogue with us as you think about these things for yourself and for your loved ones and as you have questions about things that have already happened in the past. I have family members who have been cremated. I, you know, all of the things. We're here for you to ongoingly dialogue about this. I do want to say you need to have your affairs in order. You need to have your affairs in order. Man, as the head of your home, odds are you're going to die before your wife. If you go over to a nursing home, the population in the nursing home is largely women. Right? Of course, we have all those funny videos about why men don't live as long as women, right? <laughs> but you need to have your affairs in order, life insurance, etc. You need to, you know, 23 years ago uh, when my father died, we had a life insurance plan. It was, I'll just be really straight with you, it was $100,000 uh, for a grieving family who's you know, depending on how you're going to, how, what, what's going to happen with your wife, whether you want her to stay home with the kids, that doesn't last very long when you have mortgage payments and bills and taxes and all sorts of things. That doesn't go very far. I mean, we went through it very quickly. <laughs> but I had a really cool four-wheeler, and I had a really nice boat, and it helped us with our grief. <laughs> but it didn't go very far. <laughs> And I, and, and I just want you to know, you, you if you're going to care for your wife in your absence, you need to have some affairs in order, and you need quite a bit more life insurance than that. And you need to think about what else you need to have in order to love your family, even through your own death. I kind of need to stop, but no one escapes death. No one escapes death. We are in Adam's line, so all die. But Enoch is our hope. Enoch is the shadow of what Jesus said. When Jesus said, all who live and believe in me will live and never die. And so we see that shadow of what Christ is saying right here in Genesis chapter 5 with Enoch who walked with God. So let us be a people who walk with God and shun the madness of the world all around. And we have hope 
both in this life that we will remain Christ's church in the face of all hindrances, just as the saints, small as they were in the wickedness of the world in Genesis 5, endured against all hindrances and all obstacles, faced wickedness all around, and persevered in faith in God Almighty and Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so our hope as His church, as we're marginalized, is that by God's grace, we can persevere and endure through all hindrances against us, and our sufferings are not new. They're not new. And our hope is that death is now the last enemy because Christ rose from the grave for us. Stand with me for prayer, would you? Father, we do have hope because our Lord Jesus' words were that He would build His church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And just as Your people of old endured, You are keeping us for Yourself. And even when we are hidden away, even when we are marginalized at Your providential hand, we know that You are accomplishing Your very purposes with Your bride. And we are Your people to walk with You as Enoch, to have this high calling and high privilege to shun the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to walk near you and in your very presence until you call us home, making death not just the last enemy, but the doorway to life. Thank you for the precious words of Jesus to us. That those who live and believe in you will live and never die, and that you are a shield to us always in this present age even with the spiritual forces of wickedness all around, with enemies on every side. Goodness and mercy will still follow us all the days of our life. We entrust ourselves to your care. In Jesus' name, amen.